Okay, good morning. It's uh, nice to be with you this morning. This is rather unique. I should say I've never done this before. I did notice, though, that people still don't sit in the front row. We are creatures of habit, aren't we? <laughs> so, um, what I'm going to do this morning, because there's no clock for me to see, I'm going to have a timer up here so that I don't uh, keep you here till lunch. All right? Let's uh, open in a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, uh, we bow our hearts uh, before you this morning and ask, Lord, that you would help us in the understanding of the Scriptures, that you, uh, Lord, would uh, allow your Scriptures to find a fertile ground in our hearts, that you would give help and understanding and conviction and in comfort, that you, Lord, would... Uh, lift up your son the lord jesus this morning before us and that we would see him we are certainly grateful for the hope we have in your son the lord jesus may all that we do this morning honor him and glorify his name we ask it in his name amen so we're uh, in luke chapter 23 this morning luke chapter 23 and before we you could go ahead and turn to luke but I am going to read a few portions of Scripture from some of the other Gospels. I wanted to look this morning at the two thieves on the cross. And I wanted to, there's all four Gospels uh, mention these two criminals that are on the cross next to Jesus, but only Luke is the one that gives us some details. Uh, the other Gospels treat them very briefly. I just want to read some of those verses. You don't need to turn to them. Uh, Matthew's account in verse 38 of 27, then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and another on the left. Verse 44, even the robbers who were crucified with him, reviled him with the same thing. In Mark, in chapter 15, and verse 27, with him they also crucified two robbers, one on his right and the other on his left. So the scripture was fulfilled, which says he was numbered with the transgressors. In verse 32, let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. Even those who were crucified with him reviled him. And then I'm going to go to John chapter 19, verses 17 and 18. And he, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the Place of the Skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side, and Jesus in the center. Now for our passage in Luke, Luke 23, verse 32, we'll start. There were also two 
others, criminals, led with him to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left, then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots. And the people stood looking on. But when the rulers with them, but even the rulers with them, sneered, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. The soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. An inscription also was written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. Then one of the criminals who was hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. It's always been interesting to me that when it comes to the crucifixion of Christ, it seems that the Gospels are very brief in its details. It just, they just sort of lay out the facts. They don't expound upon what's going on there. Of course, there are other scriptures, Psalm 22 and others that we can look at to see some of those things. But when it comes to the Gospels, it sort of matter-factly lays it out. But Luke Give us a little bit more detail when it comes to these two criminals. What I'd like to do is maybe set the scene a little bit, fill in some of the details that are going on. And these are familiar things to you, but I want to put them in your mind as we go through this. Pilate, as you know, has heard the charges against Jesus and knows that the Jewish leaders have handed him over to him out of their envy and jealousy. He finds no basis for putting Jesus to death, and he attempts to set him free. And he uses the custom of releasing a convicted uh, prisoner to the people whom they choose prior to the Passover feast. And he's hoping that they're going to choose the other guy. But when given the choice, the crowd enthusiastically calls for the death of Jesus. Even though the other man is considered both he's rebellion, he's charged with rebellion and with murder. The crowd calls for the death of Jesus. And so Pilate washes his hands of the whole thing hands them over to soldiers to carry out an execution. The soldiers took Jesus into the hall, and they called the garrison together. And they gather around him, their entire company, and they begin to mock him. They bow down before him. Hail, King of the Jews. 
They make a crown of thorns and they put it on top of his head. And they take a rod and they beat him. They pull his beard. They punch him in the face. Now normally, when somebody is executed, they have to carry their own cross, that beam that they would hang on. They would have to carry it out themselves. But Jesus had become so weak and unstable that they enlisted the help of a man named Simon from Cyrene. They pressed him into service, and he helped Jesus carry. He carried Jesus' cross out to Golgotha. And we are told that there are two criminals that were crucified with him, one on either side. And this is so that the prophecy would be fulfilled. He was numbered with the transgressors. So there are three men hanging on the cross. But the one in the middle, that's the guy who's getting all the attention. There's a crowd of people that has gathered around to watch the scene. And there's a sign over his head. And it says, this is the king of the Jews. There's a small group of women who are also there. One of them is Jesus' mother. And they are weeping and they are sobbing. Matthew tells us that when people passed by or people were there, they blasphemed him. They wagged their heads at him and they are saying, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. You, if you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Scripture doesn't say it, but I suspect that some of the people that were there who said those things were the money changers and the merchants from the temple. And they were still steaming from when Jesus turned over the tables and chased them out. Likewise, the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, the religious leaders of Israel mocked the Lord Jesus. He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe. You know, they were always looking for a sign, weren't they? Let him come down from the cross and we'll believe. He trusted God. Let God deliver him. For he said, I am the Son of God. No doubt these religious leaders felt that they finally had the victory over this country rabbi that was driving them crazy and staring up the people. No doubt they thought they had won. The Roman soldiers also mocked him. If you are the king, save yourself. The soldiers were used to killing and they were used to death. They were used to executions. The thought of someone coming down from the cross probably was entertaining to them, but they knew. They knew no one comes down from the cross. No one. Meanwhile, a group of their soldiers were off to the side, and they were gambling for his clothes. 
That's the scene. That's what we're looking at. I hope you have that picture in your mind. Because what those people didn't know, what those people didn't understand, is that Jesus could come down from the cross. It was only a few hours before when he said to his disciples, when they had drawn a sword to protect him, he said, do you think that I cannot now pray to my father and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? Jesus had the ability to come down from the cross, but he wouldn't. He would not come down from the cross. You see, he was there of his own free will. He was there knowing that this day was going to come. And in fact, had told his disciples about it many times that this day was coming. He wanted to be on that cross. Do you understand that? Jesus had said to his disciples, Therefore my Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. He also said, For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Folks, you know as well as I do, he was there to pay the sin debt. The sin debt that you and I owe. That we cannot pay. We owe a sin debt to a holy God. And he was there in our place. He was there in our stead. He was there to pay that price. But even the two thieves joined in. The scriptures tell us that they both joined in, that they reviled him. They said, save yourself and us. Criminals stick together, right? If Jesus is coming down, hey, take us with you. But they did it to mock him. And even with all this hate, even with all this mocking that's being thrust at Jesus, even with all the shouting and the hatred, through all that was going on around that cross, though the mob reviled him, he did not revile in turn. While suffering, he did not threaten but he committed himself to God. Even with all that going around him, one thief, one thief, in between the hurling of insults, he notices the difference in the Lord Jesus. 
And though he had at once joined in the reviling and the mocking of the Lord, he now stops. He stops. And now he's watching. He's observing. And then he heard Jesus pray, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Oh, man, wow. The Greek word forgive there also means to lay aside, to let it be, to, to hold back, to allow. In a sense, Jesus was asking his father to hold back his wrath from those against those who were tormenting him and torturing him. But hearing that prayer, it causes the thief to pause. He must have been astounded. What, what kind of man does that? What kind of man prays for those who are torturing him? He stopped mocking Jesus. And perhaps in those moments when he was quiet, he considered his own life and his own present situation. Matthew and Mark call these two guys robbers. They use the same word. John just says to others. But Luke when he writes it, he uses a word translated criminals in the New King James. And it literally means evil doer. Consider that. He considered the reaction of the Lord Jesus to this crowd. And he reflected upon his own life. And Luke calls him an evil doer. Perhaps he's looking over his life and realizes that his whole life, his whole life has been pushing against the things that are right. He's been outside of God. He's an evildoer. And he has finally ended up where he belongs. Condemned to death on a cross in pain. Now he looks at Jesus who actually prays for his tormentors, who was quiet, who does not revile and return, who does not return hatred for hatred, but literally prays for the people who are tormenting him. And so now he's got to think about who this Jesus is. Now he's got to think about who this Jesus claims to be. His partner from the other side of the cross continues in his mocking. Luke tells us that he said, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us! But our first criminal, he rebukes the other one. Still... This guy is still searing at Jesus with hatred. But our first criminal rebukes him. He says, do you not fear God? 
We are here because we deserve to be here. What we are getting, we deserve. This man, this man has done nothing wrong. Certainly at this time, he recognized the Christ. He recognized the Messiah. Who could pray such a prayer under such excruciating pain and be uncomplaining and freely forgive? Who could do that? Only Christ could do that. His expression to the other criminal was an expression of repentance, a confession of a life of evil work, a life away from God. The first step to salvation is always a repentant heart. This man has taken that first step. And then he looks at the Lord Jesus and he says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. What an amazing request. In the present circumstances, it almost seems like a very impractical request. The man next to him is dying, just like he is, under the same condemnation. And yet, he believes that there's a life beyond where he's at. Enough to ask Jesus to remember him when he comes into the kingdom. The only crown that Jesus has upon his head is a crown of thorns. The only tribute that the Lord Jesus is getting at this time is mocking and hatred and scorn. What kingdom could he possibly be talking about? But he does three things when he presents his request. First, he calls, he calls him Lord. He elevates him to his proper place. He says, remember me. He's acknowledging that there is hope beyond the present life and that Jesus holds the key. And then he says, when you come into your kingdom. At that point, I believe, he puts him on the throne of David. He knows who he is. He knows who he is. He's placing his faith in Israel's Messiah. The Lord's response is immediate. <coughs> he says, Surely I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Just like that. In a moment of time. In the most unexpected place. From a most unexpected man. This criminal. Is headed to paradise. Think about that. This man. Between the time that he hears that promise until the time of his death 
will not be able to do any good works. He will not be able to do a single good deed. It kind of reminds me of the fact that, you know, there are people, I guess I was, when I was thinking about this, this criminal is on the cross and he's hurling insults at the Lord one minute. And he's asking him to remember him when he comes into his kingdom the next. He's on the cross under sentence of death. You know, there are people in my life that I have shared the gospel with many times. We were with some of those people last night, Patty and I. They know who I am. They know what I stand for. I have shared the gospel with them plainly and clearly, and yet they still refuse. This man, no doubt, has refused God his entire life. And yet, at this moment, at this moment in time, suddenly his heart is opened and he's able to receive. And I am reminded that I cannot, I cannot give up. I cannot stop witnessing. I cannot think that somebody's heart has grown so cold as to not be able to receive the gospel. This man does. At the moment he is being executed. But the interesting thing is, is like I had said, there are, there is no time for this man to prove his repentance. There is no time for this man to do works of righteousness. Yet the promise given by Jesus to this criminal will take him from the pain of the cross to paradise. Folks, there's no way you earn your place in heaven. You cannot go to church, the right church, and earn a place in heaven. You cannot give all your money to the poor and earn your place in heaven. You cannot do a good, enough good deeds to earn a place in heaven. You can't be born in the right family to earn a place in heaven. You can't even be religious enough to earn a place in heaven. Because heaven is not earned. Heaven is not earned as a reward for the good things that we do in this life. If it were so, then God would owe us, wouldn't he? But uh, God owes no one. In Romans, it tells us now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as a debt. But to him who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Colossians 2 says, Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness 
and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance. Heaven is inherited. And like any other inheritance, it is received by being related to a person. One criminal's expression of faith made him related to Jesus, and he found himself in paradise. Faith is all that is needed. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Romans 10.9 That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Hebrews 11.6 But without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. You know, at the moment that this criminal reached out to Jesus, that's exactly what he did. He confessed, and he believed. He confessed and he believed. The other criminal, well, he died in his sin with hate in his heart. There are two sides to the cross. One side is a picture of a man who recognizes that without God, his life is useless. Who recognizes that he has nothing to give. Who recognizes his only hope is to believe and rely on the mercy of God. That man inherited paradise. The other side of the cross, the other side of the cross is one that leads to eternal damnation. Of one who refuses to believe. It doesn't necessarily need to be somebody who has been evil all of his life. It can be somebody who goes to church but has never really taken the, that step to place their heart wholeheartedly in the message of Jesus. Two sides to the cross. One leads to eternal life. The other leads to eternal damnation. Folks, I've always believed 
well, you know, in, in conversations that I've had, there's a John Lennon song, uh, you know the song, you know, and it goes, imagine, imagine there's no heaven and no hell below. What an evil song that is. If there is no hell, then evil is not punished. There is no reckoning. There is no day of judgment. If there is no hell, then those who commit evil in this world are not held accountable. Hell is a real place. And people go there. People go there. But the scriptures tell us that he who believes in the Son has everlasting life. And he who does not believe in the Son does not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. It also says that this is the testimony, that God has given eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. That's what it says. It doesn't pull any punches. Jesus himself said, Most assuredly I say to you, he who believes, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment but has passed from death into life. There is a judgment that is coming. If you're a believer this morning, then that should be an encouragement to you. Because God is going to hold everything to account, everybody to account, every nation to account. The injustices that we see in our world today will be made right. There's a judgment that's coming. And the only way to escape that judgment is through Jesus. Jesus is our Savior because He offers to rescue us from the judgment that is coming. Jesus is a Savior because He rescues us from hell. Like those two criminals, we each have a choice to make. And that choice needs to be made now. And Jesus is the only way. The Apostle Peter said, For there is no other name under heaven given among men that by which we must be saved. And Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Now here's the thing, folks. That means it's a narrow way. The only way to eternal life is through Jesus Christ. That's it. There's no other way. Jesus is exclusive when it comes to the way. 
He's inclusive when it comes to sinners. Every sinner, regardless of your place in life, even if you are an evildoer, you, like this guy on the cross, can inherit heaven through faith in Christ. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. There is a hope beyond this life. And we live today in the security of that hope which is ours. Paul writes by the Holy Spirit in 2 Corinthians, he writes this, For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house made not with hands, eternal in the heavens. Now he who has prepared for us this very thing is God, who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. <clears throat> Folks, I, I decided to do this sermon yesterday. I had another message. But this is the one the Lord laid on my heart. And I'll tell you why. Uh, this past Thursday, I had the privilege of uh, giving a eulogy at a woman who lived 95 years. And while we were at her gravesite, uh, she's body is in the casket, and you can see underneath the casket, there's there's this big hole in the ground. And I, I'll tell you that funerals and caskets and holes in the ground are some of the most vivid images I have before I came to know the Lord. Now this woman was 95. She lived a long life. She was a believer in the Lord Jesus. She was a wonderful woman of grace and mercy. I was blessed to have known her. But I can tell you of a 16-year-old boy, my friend, when I was 17, dying in a car accident. And I watched his mother weeping at his gravesite. You know what? His casket may have been a different color, but the hole in the ground was the same. A year later, I actually carried my own grandfather to his grave. 
But once again, that casket may have been different, and it may have been in a different place, but that hole in the ground, it was the same. He was 72. A couple years after that, I had a friend from high school who had a three-month-old baby. The baby died of SIDS. And you, or I, have never seen so much pain in one man's face as he carried his own three-month-old daughter to her grave. You know what? It's the same hole. Folks, I wanted to bring the gospel to you this morning. And it's all of its simplicity because it's an encouragement to my heart that there is a hope beyond the grave. Amen? And it was good for me to be reminded of that. To know that I lived this life not just for that grave. But I live it to the Lord. And to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. I've come this morning with this message because I have been reminded of the frailty of life. And in those times that we are living in today and the chaos that we see going around in our country, there is one thing that gives me hope. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, again, what a, what a privilege it was to be able to share the gospel with the folks that are here this morning. I don't know the hearts of the folks that are here, but you do. Perhaps there is one here this morning that this message has spoken to in particular. I pray for that heart, Lord. I pray that the seed that's planted will grow and produce fruit. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Son, the Lord Jesus. We thank you for the hope that we have in him. We thank you for the tenderness in which he went to this cross and how he treated this criminal. We thank you that though he was reviled, he did not revile in return. Though he was mocked, he did not mock back. Though he was spewed and covered with words of hate, he did not return in kind, but he committed himself to you. Lord, may it be that the folks that are here this morning, that every single one of us commit our lives to you. Father, I pray your blessing upon your words this morning, upon the gospel of Christ. May it go forth with power and bear fruit. We seek your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen.